Mark chapter 6, here is a miraculous story of Jesus walking on the water. Starts in verse 45, and goes over to verse 52. If you're a guest with us, this is what we do every Sunday. Sing, thank God, we praise the Lord, we open the Bible, read it. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 45. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God. Let's begin verse 45. The text says, immediately, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Join me now as we pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we pray by the banner, under the guise and the righteousness of Jesus, we claim no merits of our own, only that of Christ. Father, we pray by the merits of Jesus, we pray in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that you've given to us in conversion, the Holy Spirit that, that penned these words, the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We, we come to you by the power of that Spirit, and we need help today. Father, as we worship and open your word, would you raise a new awareness and a new confidence that we might put our confidence in you. Help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I just have read to you one of the most famous stories in the Bible. In fact, the story of Jesus walking on the water has become a little bit of a cultural idiom. Someone walking on water. To say that somebody walks on water, you say they're perfect. You are saying that they have great power. You're saying that you are somehow sure of their holiness. Walks on water. It's because the concept of walking on water is so foreign to all of us. It's inconceivable. Past week when the rains fell on Thursday morning, it was a torrential flood here. This campus, stuff gets washed every which way. Thursday was one of those days that I wished I could walk 
on water. But when I go to water, I need something to keep me up. I need something to float upon. We're familiar with that. We're familiar with needing a boat or maybe skiing or tubing or paddleboarding for those of you with balance. I cannot do that. You get in the water, you can swim across the water. If you have had swimming lessons, you can motivate in the water. If you can't, you can sit there and tread water. You can dive into water. But walking on water, what does this story mean for me? As school starts, as work begins, as retirement stretches out in front of you, marriage or the hopes of marriage or single life, the kids grow up under your care or you spend your life knowing you'll never, never have kids. What does this story mean? What does it mean in the world you face? I kept, I'm asking these questions to you because I've been asking these questions all week long. What does this mean? I mean, I mean beyond... Christ with us in the storm. It's very common to hear talk about Jesus with you in the storm. That's a good thing to have. But what else is here? It's sovereignty. Sovereignty. Do you know the word sovereignty? Do you understand the word sovereignty? What it means for God to actually be sovereign? What it means for Jesus, his son, our Lord, to be sovereign? I hope today to help you with that. Because Christ's, here's the theme of the message. Christ's sovereignty means our safety. Or if you want to put it like this, his sovereignty means our safety. Let's do what we've done the last couple of weeks. Let's go through the story. Uh, the best thing we can do uh, is just walk through it and let you get a feel for it. I want you to have the story to, to get beyond what I might say so that you have what does the Bible say. You can go to this story and withdraw truth. So let's go through the story and then come back and see if we can make some application. Join me there in verse 45. Notice how the text begins. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Now what has happened before this? We've been dropped right into the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men, maybe 20,000 people. He did it miraculously. It was something they'd never seen. We don't even know if all the people knew it was a miracle. They just knew this was really good fish and bread. It had been a great feast, but in this text, verse 45, there is this urgency, not just Mark's trademark word, immediately. He uses that all the time. There's something else in verse 45 that makes us think, Jesus sees a problem. Verse 45, immediately, see that word? He made his disciples, compelled them. He put them in the boat, told them to get out on the scene, get out of here. Go before him into another town, another place called Bethsaida. They are floating off 
and the crowd is still there. If we go to John chapter 6, we find out something. I'll talk about that in a moment. But the crowd is getting unruly, and so Jesus stays back with the crowd, and he dismisses the crowd. Once he's gotten everybody gone, they're all going home, they've been well fed, they've been well taught, now they're on the road home. Jesus does something he does quite a bit. Verse 46 tells us, after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. He ascended the mountain. We hear some of that in the Psalms. I'll talk about that in just a moment. So who knows how long he's been up there. The guys have been gone, he's by himself. Verse 47, evening came. He was alone, evening came, the boat is on the sea, and he saw, and he was alone on the land. The boat on the sea, Jesus on the land. They are in a boat on the sea, Jesus is sitting on the land. Jesus not only can walk on the land, he can walk on the sea. The men, for them to be on the sea, must be in a boat. There is some contrast to something that Mark is doing there, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. He was alone on the land. He saw that they were making headway painfully. He has sent them out there into the ocean. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was blowing against them. It was the fourth watch of the night. Mark is a good Roman. He tells us how the Romans broke up the evening the fourth watch of the night was the very end before the morning came. So from somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., they have been rowing all night long. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is the worst time to do anything but sleep. There should have been a bunch of amens for that. So they're out there at a terrible time. They've been doing this all all night. He saw that they were making headway painfully, the winds against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. This is not like before in chapter 4 when he's in the boat with them and he says, peace be still, and the waves stop. This is something totally different. They are in the boat. He is on the land. He sees that they're struggling. He came to them, and, and look what the text says, walking on the sea. This is something new. Mark is writing this to answer the question, who is this? So all of these miracles that are happening go all the way back to Herod wondering, who is it? Is it John the Baptist whose head I cut off? So Mark takes Peter's information. Peter's the apostle that told Mark everything. Mark writes it down so that you know who this is. He's already done the miracle of creating the bread. Now he's doing what no one else has ever done. Even Moses had to have the Red Sea split so he could walk on dry ground, not Jesus. He's walking on the sea. What a weird turn at the end of verse 48. Do you see it there? What a weird turn. He's walking on the sea. He meant to pass by. Does that strike you as weird when you read that for the first time? It did me. So uh, it's just build up. He sees that they're struggling. They are out on the sea. He's walking on the sea. He's going to go there and help them. He's going to go and provide some comfort. He's going to go and, and make sure they're safe. The end of verse 48 says, He meant the intent is to pass them by. 
It, it's, there's ringing of the Old Testament there. We'll come back to that. He meant to pass them by. <clears throat> when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. There's some superstitious disciples. Not like Michael Scott, a little stitious. They were superstitious. They saw him and they thought he was an apparition. They thought he was a, a, a phantom. They thought he was a ghost. And the text says that they cried out. They didn't cry out for Jesus to help. That It is literally, when you read it, it is they cried up. Scared him to death. This involuntary yelling. So they cried out. For they all saw him, they were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and he said, here are some Old Testament words. Take heart, it is I. It's, you should see something here. Mark is writing to tell us who this is. This is his identity, not just in what he does, but in what he says. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with then I will be with you. The wind ceased, and they're astounded. Being astounded is not being converted, astounded. You know why I say that? Verse 52, it's a, it's a tragedy, even with the disciples. After all that has happened, he is answering who he is. Verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves, their hearts, you see hard stone all of the emotions are there all of the excitement all the fear but it's something has yet to happen the crucifixion resurrection jesus ascends from the dead and ascends into heaven the holy spirit will come and conversion right now they're So what do, we, what do we get from here? What, do we, what can we learn from this passage? I think there are several things, many ways to get at it. I'm just going to talk about the Lord's protection in your life. The Lord's protection in your life. Here's the first way he protects us. Number one, he protects us from dangers that we do not see. He protects us from things we don't see. There's some forceful words in verse 45. I pointed them out as we went along. Verse 45, you have this idea of Jesus making his disciples get into the boat and go across the sea. He compelled them. He, that word is used elsewhere in the Bible to mean he forced them. It's almost like he's pushing them away. So I started asking why. Why is he doing that? Why does he want them gone? Why can't they stay in this feast why can't they enjoy some of the recognition that people would have that Jesus made bread? Why? I think John tells us why. It's always good to see what else is said about this miracle in another place. John tells us about this miracle. John chapter 6, <clears throat> he's getting those disciples out of there in a hurry for a reason. Why? John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. It's the same event. John tells us when the people saw that what he had done, that's making bread, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, 
This indeed is the prophet that is to come into the world. Jesus perceiving that they were about to come and make him king by force, come and force him to be king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Mark inserts, when Jesus saw that, he got the disciples out of there. They would never know why. They didn't see the mob coming, this, this enthusiastic, wrong-headed mob. This is why Jesus got them out of there so quickly. He dismissed the crowd himself. He was protecting the disciples from such an enthusiastic, wrong-thinking mob. Be careful, be careful. Do not substitute enthusiasm for knowledge. Enthusiasm and knowledge are not the same. Right knowledge should create enthusiasm, but enthusiasm can never substitute knowledge. What we know about God. A thousand times a day, God protects us. A thousand times a day, God protects you in ways that you never see and maybe don't understand. I mean, I mean, the truth is that he took the disciples, it must have been bad, because he took them and sent them right into a storm he knew was there. And he sent them into the storm for their protection. What does God protect us from? What is, what is Christ protecting you as your good shepherd? What does he protect you from? He protects us from wrong teaching. That's what happened here, wrong teaching. He protects us from wrong motivations. He protects us. He protects us from sin. God takes people out of our life. He protects us from people that you thought were actually going to be helpful to you, turned out to be toxic and poisonous. God protects you from that. God protects you at work or maybe from work. God has protected you from a thousand different health risks this week that you didn't see. We had staff retreat not too long ago, coming back from down the mountain. I came up on a wreck that had just happened. It, it was around a bend. It, I didn't see it, and it, it happened. I passed it so quickly. There's nothing I could do. The car's behind. Had I been 30 seconds, that right there is a, just a dim example of the things that happen in your life a thousand times a day that you never see. The frustrations you might have because you get held up, getting somewhere, it might be God is protecting you. A job you didn't get, it might be God protecting you. Even though it feels like what had happened is you got thrown into a storm, the truth is the storm was God's protection. There's temptation over there. He's protecting. What is the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. So he protects you. There's no way that the disciples would understand why he took them off the shore where there's plenty of food and happy people and put them in a boat for them to spend hours and hours and hours in the storm. There's so many, there's so many what ifs. 
And oftentimes you use that little phrase, what if, what if I hadn't done that? What if I had married that person? What if I had stayed that evening? And I want to turn it over and say there are so many what ifs that God has kindly saved you from. That's reason enough this morning to give praise to God. He protects us from so many things we do not see. Let me give you a second thing that he protects us from. Number two, <clears throat> he protects us. He protects us in dangers that we do see. So we, he protects us from things we don't see. The disciples didn't know why he got them out of there. But he also protects us in dangers, the right now dangers that we do see. You'll find that in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him into the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, we know the rest of the story, and I'm going to get to it in a moment. We, we know what happens, but this story is known, of Je is known as Jesus walking on the water, but the disciples didn't know that about Jesus. All they knew was that Jesus took them out of a feast put them on the Sea of Galilee, and sent them into a terrible storm. God does that on purpose. It was planned. The Lord Jesus, the sovereign Jesus, took them and pushed them into a storm he knew was there. When you get a hold of God's sovereignty in your life and you understand that God is in complete control even of the small things and the details, that God has put you there in the storm. We don't stand and scream at the storm and, res and resent the storm. What do we do? We ask questions. What is it? What is he teaching me? What is God teaching you? I mean, the storm has a purpose. That storm is there for a reason. We're going to find that out in just a moment. Jesus is going to walk on water in front of them it is there for a reason. Their struggle all night long, they struggle. Why? Why does God leave you in the struggle for so long? It's not like they were just out on the sea and they woke Jesus up and he calmed the storm. This is hours and hours and hours and hours. What is this storm? The storm teaches us. The storm teaches us about faith. What do you believe? What do you really believe? When you, are, when you are thrown around, what do you believe? The storm teaches us about faith. The storm teaches us about trust. When you feel like you don't have a friend in the world and all you have in this world is to hold on to the truth that you know to be true about God, about his love for you in Jesus, the storm teaches us trust. The storm teaches us endurance. It's a, it's a forgotten Christian trait, endurance. To stay in there with all of your might and don't give up endurance. We certainly rely on God's goodness, his grace, his power, sure, but they were out there rowing endurance. The storm teaches us about God, how God works, not just in good ways. That's prosperity theology. That's useless. It breaks down in the face of tragedy. It teaches us how God works in, in hard times and, and hurtful times and sorrow and pain. The storm teaches us about God, that there is a smiling providence, there is a frowning providence, but it's still providence. 
He protects us, you see. He protects us in things we don't see. He protects us in the storms we do see. I'm going to give you a third thing to consider about Jesus. Number three. He protects us by his mighty power. By his mighty power. How does he do it? Join me there in verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. I got hung on that phrase. He went up on the mountain to pray. Where have I heard that before? Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. He protects us as our substitute. Write that word down, substitute. Why do I say substitute? Because the psalmist asked the question, Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who can stand in this holy place? And he answers it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, nobody has that. That psalm tells us there's not one person that can ascend and be close to God, to be a friend of God. Only Christ can do that. I feel like Mark has given us this foreshadowing, foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus and his perfect righteousness. When you understand the gospel, you understand that Jesus didn't just die in your place to take the wrath of God. That is part of the gospel. The other side of that coin of the gospel is that Jesus lived perfectly because you can't and you don't. And only perfection is accepted by God. And so not only does Jesus take away the wrath of God, he brings to us this righteousness that God requires. And that righteousness is yours. He protects us by being our substitute. Not only that, he protects us by being our intercessor, our intercessor. Do you see him there, verse 46 and 47? What does the text say about Jesus praying? Verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. He was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway. So that's them out in the sea. We understand in verse 46, Jesus is on the mountain praying alone. Mark tells us of several times that Jesus does this, three times. Right here, uh, Jesus prays alone. He prayed alone all night before he chose the 12 disciples. That's the second time. The third time is he prayed alone in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. So I started thinking about that. Well, then what does, what does Jesus pray when he prays? When I have my devotional, I oftentimes will write down my prayers. It helps me keep a good line of thought, make sure that I'm praying for certain things, praying for people, for my home, for Connie. What does Jesus pray? Well, when there's something in Luke chapter 22, remember when, um, remember when, when Peter had bragged about how he would not deny, and this is what Jesus said to Peter. Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith, that's what Jesus intercedes for us, our faith, that your faith will not fail, and when you have turned again, that's what he prays for, turning again, repentance from sin, faith and repentance. Jesus says for Peter, I have prayed that you will strengthen your brothers, that we become encouragers. What does Jesus go to the Father on our behalf? What does he pray? He prays for our faith, 
He, he prays for repentance, away from sin. He prays that we would be an encouragement to people. If you go to John, John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, there you can actually you have a written form of Jesus praying for his people. He asks God, God, God the Father, keep them in your name. Keep them true to your name. Keep them protected from the evil one. Jesus, God's Son, asked the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Why do we do expositional preaching? Because that's what Jesus prayed. To sanctify the church by your word. Your word is truth. He asked God, make them one, unified. John 17, go read it sometime. This is Jesus praying for you. He asked the Father, bring them home with us. What did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Your will be done. What did the writer of Hebrews say about his intercession? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 tells us that he ever lives to make intercession for you. Right now, there is a man seated at the right hand of God talking about you, praying for you. He protects us as our intercessor. He, he protects us as our sovereign Lord. How does he do that? The text tells us, verse 46, 47, 48. You, you, you see in verse 48, there he is walking on the water. He's walking on water like you did this carpet and that tile. You put your foot down. You trusted gravity was there. You pushed off and took another step. You didn't even think about it. He walks on water, didn't think about it. Verse 48 tells us that he's walking on the water. Verse 48 also tells us he walks on the water and something happens. They were making headway painfully. The wind was against them. By the fourth watch of the night, here's three, four o'clock in the morning. It's still dark. Dawn hasn't come. He came to them walking on the sea. Slow down. He meant to pass them by. He protects us as our sovereign Lord walking on water. And also, here is, a rem here is a reminder. Remember Mark's writing, who is this? Here is the sovereign Lord passing by. That's from the Old Testament. Exodus 33, Moses said to God, show me your glory. God held, hid him in the cleft of the rock, and the text says he passed by. When Elijah the prophet had done such great work, was attacked by Ahab and Jezebel, threatened his life, he fell into depression, he thought his ministry was over, God took him up on the rock, and the text says that he passed by. Disciples in the storm needing something, afraid, fearful of death. What did Jesus do? He passed by. He's showing his sovereign majesty and glory. What else? How does he protect us? Verses 49 and 50, there is great assurance in that passage. Great assurance. Look at the words that Jesus spoke. <clears throat> Verse 50, they saw him, they cried out, that is to say they cried up, they just yelled in, involuntarily. They cried out, for they all saw him. They were terrified. 
But he spoke to them and said, look at the phrase, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, do not be afraid on either side. Take heart, do not be afraid. Isaiah 41, fear not. Isaiah 43, 1, fear not. Exodus 36, God speaks to Joshua as Moses is, is dying. Do not be afraid. Deuteronomy 3, to Joshua, do not be afraid. So you have that on either side. Fear not. Right in the middle. Do you see the phrase right in the middle? You ought to circle it. If we had it in a Greek Testament, it, it, would, it would almost jump off the page. Jesus says, it is I. That is the actual I am statement. Mark's been answering the question, who is this? There, if you wrote, read it in Greek, it's the same. It go a me, I am. It's a phrase that when, 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 when Moses at the burning bush asked, whom shall I say sent me? It's where God said to him, I am. It's where we get the, the name Yahweh. Jesus will pick that up in John. John who gives us a picture of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus will use the I am statement. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. He protects us by this wonderful truth of his sovereign majesty. He protects us, verse 51, he protects us by being with us. Look, one of the greatest, one of the greatest comforting truths is found in verse 51 is that he got into the boat with them. Certainly the wind ceased, and John tells us they were immediately at the shore, but I think the most amazing thing is that Jesus gets in the boat with you. With you in your fear, with you in your grief, with you in your doubt, with you in your frustration, with you in your depression. Jesus gets in the boat with you in your sin to take it away. You pray for people, you pray the promise of Scripture that tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. You see, he protects us. This story is more than just Jesus walking in the storm. This is Jesus protecting us from things we don't see. This is Jesus protecting us from things we do see. This is this is him protecting us by his mighty power. Do you believe in the mighty, sovereign power of Jesus? Look, I'll just tack on one last one. It's verse 52. It's a puzzling verse. It tells us that he protects us in spite of ourselves. He, he protects us in spite when you don't deserve it. Where do I get that in verse 52? It's a little bit of a commentary. Mark says, they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't get it. He's writing, who is this? This is a great story about who he is. He creates. They didn't get it. So they had another, another miracle. They still didn't get it. He tells us why in verse 52, the constant human problem. Why? Their hearts. Hard. You see, Paul would say it like this, we're dead in sin. 
They didn't see who he was. They didn't see that he was God. Look, when people fail to see who Christ is, it's not because they don't get the logic. It's not because uh, they're too intelligent. It's not because they need more proof. It's a heart. We've got to be careful with the language we use when we ask people, hey, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? Or give your heart. Look, Jesus does not want your heart. Your heart is stone. Jesus gives a new heart. Ezekiel says it like this in Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. It's a new spirit that I will put within you. I'll remove the heart you've got, the heart of stone. Give you a heart of flesh. Here he is, the sovereign Lord Jesus. Here is the Lord providing protection. Because he is sovereign, he will keep you safe. This morning as we close our time of reading the Bible, Join me in a moment of prayer and commitment. With your heads bowed this morning, let's get ready to pray, and then we'll sing another song. As we get ready to pray, I'm going to ask you, are there things that you fear, something you're struggling with desperately? You just needed a word of encouragement from God's word to give you confidence in the sovereign Lord Jesus. If you'd like to come and pray this morning as we sing, I'll invite you to come forward. If you... I've heard from the first time, or maybe understood for the first time, it's not just you praying a prayer. You need something to happen inside. We'd like to talk further about what it means to, to give your life to Christ, to have him come and take away your heart of stone and put inside of you a new heart. That's what you want. That's what you want this morning. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. If you'd like to pray with someone, talk to somebody. When we sing, we'll invite you to come forward. Father, thank you. Thank you for the beautiful story of the sovereign Lord Jesus. And I pray that now by your hand, by your spirit, you will call people to yourself. Find us faithful, trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing together?